Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for coming. Just a quick reminder, if you're new to the channel, subscribe, and don't forget to click that notification bell so you'll be notified whenever we go live. We're constantly doing cross streams with other channels and adding new shows. Next week, we'll be doing our bi-monthly news show with Matt and David of Left Reckoning. Also... Today, the audio from the live show in L.A. is up wherever you get your audio podcasts. And, of course, it was up for patrons only. Speaking of patrons, thank you to all of you that have become patrons and keep the TIR machine chugging along. If you want to join us, there's only one way. I'm a patron. It's easy. And for just as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year, you can access all the champagne rooms and be a part of movie night. That being said, let's bring in tonight's Thursday night news crew. First and foremost, let me bring in my co-host, my homie, my dog. He is the man of the Mau Mau Hour. You may know him from his many appearances on the Brianna Joy Gray Show. The Majority Report, and whenever else a black voice is needed to talk about Haiti, <laughs> with conviction. <laughs> Don't laugh. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat, peace and greetings to the audience, peace and greetings Jason Miles. How are you? I missed your call earlier today. I know you did. You're all busy and popular now. Got everyone's calling you. There used to be times we used to be able to talk for hours and hours on end. It's so easy to get in time. Now you're Mr. Mr. Popularity. It's just because uh, I'm on dating apps. That's all it is. It's the only reason why. No, I was actually talking to Teray. I was talking to Teray yesterday. I'm trying to get Teray on the show and have you and him have a discussion about uh, your favorite book of 2022, which is uh, Elite Capture. Oh, that'll be fun. Not. (laughs) (laughs) That's the episode I'm trying to get, but uh, we'll see if, if schedules work out. Um. Speaking of the live show, people say this gentleman stole the day, the 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 spotlight at the live show. Um, my my daughter's boyfriend, who was there, who doesn't watch any of this stuff at all, after it was all said and done, he was like, "Cuba, Varn, and Bessner, them was the niggas." So, but I don't want any of them to say that. But please welcome everyone's favorite middle manager of uh, the Death Star, Deep State Koopa. Hello, everyone. Um, For the record, I did not steal anything at the live show. I expropriated it in the name of the people. (laughs) We did a bit. We actually did a little freestyle bit about uh, you fucking with Ewoks. That was pretty good. Yeah, I I had to cover up the fact that I had wandered away and turned up late. I'm like, 
wow, the show is great. Oh, crap, I'm part of this show. If, if, for those of you that have seen Spinal Tap, uh, Hello Cleveland, Cuba pulled a Hello Cleveland. <laughs> hello, oh, shit, Hello Cleveland. I listened to the live show. Cuba, you did very well. Uh, Varn did well as well. Brooke Griscom also. I was, I was very entertained. It was very crisp and professionally done. I wish, well, we had, I wish we had video. We had great production staff, didn't we? We did. We did. Uh, Jordan and and uh, Jeremy Salmon. Shout out to, you know, shout out again. We can't thank them enough. I don't know if we'll be able to have uh, Jeremy's help for New York, but definitely Jordan is going to be part of the organization again uh, of the live show, which was a massive success. I still have Anna Kasparian's uh, degree from her diploma from Prairie U, my, my car. That was, that was a good one. Also part of the live show and friend in real life. He is everyone's favorite pessimist. Um, some people think he looks like the activist known as Sean King. Some people think he is Sean King. Please welcome C. Derek Varn. I'm rocking bangs to like get rid of the Sean King comparisons. It's not working. <laughs> Derek, how are you so quick on the scene whenever a black man gets his ass kicked by the police? <laughs> Particularly in Salt Lake, given the large number of African-Americans who live here. Like, well, I mean, he's the one beating them up, so <laughs> doesn't have far to go. Do you guys remember that dude in Brazil that had some crime show? Pascal, do you remember this? It wasn't that big in the States. And I, and I saw a documentary about it when I was in Brazil um, on tour a few years back. But there was a dude that had a show where he was, like, breaking this crime shit, like, People were going like, how is this guy on the scene for these murders first? And they found out he was actually doing a crime. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously, like, killing motherfuckers. Yeah, I mean, it had to happen eventually. Um, he might just be the one that got caught. <laughs> I was like, damn. Because Sean King has to have friends on the force. And whenever his money's getting low, he's like, I'm going to need you to beat a nigga. And then, <laughs> then they just go for it. And he's, he's, there's no way in the world you can be that quick on the scene of an ass whooping by the police every time. With footage. Maybe it's something about him, right? Like, if you're within 100 feet of Sean King, you suddenly feel um, an intensified racial animus. He's like a one-man race war that's just drifting around America. I don't, dude. I don't understand the popularity of that guy at all. At all. Do you have any insight on the popularity of Sean King, Pascal Robert? I watched it develop in the uh, during the height of the Black Lives Matter Lives Matter phenomenon in. I was not really thrilled. I've heard a lot of really kind of questionable things about the guy. 
I'm not going to speculate, but um, he's found his niche. <laughs> what a horrible niche. I'm the guy on the scene when your ass is getting kicked by the cops. I won't do anything about it. Hey, it, it's like one of those lampreys that just feeds on the carcasses of dead whales um, on the ocean floor. It's, um, it's a niche, but not for everyone. Yeah, I guess. Well, speaking of the law and beating down on black folks, Pascal, you wanted to talk about your favorite thing, the Supreme Court. No, absolutely. And I'm glad that you actually brought that up. because. It's oh, wait a minute. Important. Before you bring that up, I totally forgot. You know what? I did. I'm getting... Yep. I'm getting I want you to do it in so much. <laughs> I was powerless wow. to stop you. You know what? <laughs> you yeah. know why? You know why? Because you're an extrovert and you like to see faces. So no. overrated. No! Now I have to walk to New York to give you a hug. <laughs> Because usually you're in my top left corner. Mm-hmm. And to bring Kuba in, I had to... Okay, I'm going to scroll back up so I can see you're nothing. Yeah, there we are. I have an avatar. It's just that people can't see it. I Is it a duck? It oh, God, Kuba. Too soon. <laughs> Too soon. Uh, also, everyone, please welcome... My little older, younger, favorite Haitian sister, the voice of reason, in Tucson. Hello, hello, everyone. Hello, Mr. Jelly. Hello, Mr. Peanut Butter. Hello, so Deep smart. State. And hello, Sean King. <laughs> Jelly. <laughs> the, um... No, I thought Pascal was the Juan Gonzalez to my Amy Goodman. Nah, man. No. Amy <laughs> and Jay. You two go right together. It's so cute. Little cufflinks you are. We're like we're not like Juan and Amy, no? Well, you don't talk as much anymore, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. Used to talk on the phone for hours, laying on your bellies on your bed with your feet in the air. (laughs) (laughs) No, you hang up. (laughs) Whoa, whoa, I don't know why I like where this is going. So cute. (laughs) We all we all talk on the phone for hours. And I'm so glad people can't hear our group talks. I mean, if you think about it, this is just a group video call. It really is. But we're we're censoring ourselves more than we're doing in the group call. And Jean isn't here to really push it over the top. Jean and <laughs> Stefan, I think, are the worst when it comes to <laughs> things you should never say. Yes. Professor Jean and Professor Stefan. <laughs> But back to where I was trying to go with Pascal before I forgot mm-hmm. my favorite younger, older Haitian little sister. Um, Pascal, you wanted to talk about the Supreme Court and their proposed attack 
on affirmative action. And for those of you that don't know, that's how Pascal became a lawyer. Easy. <laughs> Damn, you just <laughs> savage. Savage. I made that up. That's not true. I don't want anyone to believe that. Anyway, he earned it on his own merit. Well, let us see. The part of the problem is that makes the assumption that because people benefit from affirmative action, they didn't benefit, and that's actually one of the problems that I have with the framing of the subject matter. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my attitude towards Supreme Court jurisprudence, pretty much since the days of Bush v. Gore, is that. It pretty much is worthless anyway because the, the Supreme Court is taking the posture that it had prior to the Warren Court, which is that it's a reaction, it's a tool of reaction and to protect the, the right wing factions of American politics. That being said, what has happened recently is that the Supreme Court is now considering affirmative action and what the future of affirmative action is. Now, affirmative action is a is a race-based remedy that comes out of the civil rights era that was a form or, or one of the best forms of racial democracy in that it basically inured black people at the highest levels of the educational tier with the access to university education under the guise that they normally would be discriminated against that education if those means were not facilitated for them. So the assumption was that if affirmative action did not exist, they would be discriminated against those institutions and would not be admitted. So the Supreme Court now, as this article in the nation demonstrates, is about to take this up. The Supreme Court started the process of officially dismantling affirmative action in college admissions on Monday as it heard two cases attacking the policy. Cases were brought by the Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, a group that claims to represent the interests of Asian American and Pacific Islander students who claim they were discriminated against by race conscious admission policies at the University of North Carolina at Harvard. I say claim to represent because the group was actually organized by Ed Blum, a white conservative gadfly backed by well-funded donors who has made his life's work to end affirmative action. Blum has failed to take down affirmative action in the past and most recently in 2016 through the vessel of Abigail Fisher, a white woman who sued at the University of Texas over its admission policies. In these cases, Blum and his white conservative ilk are trying to find success through pitting different minority com communities against each other in competitive world of college admissions. One of the interesting cases about that, interesting things about but the Abigail official case is that as much as we find that people complain about affirmative action to being white women, white women traditionally are the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action, particularly in the workforce and particularly in higher education, which is something very few people talk about because it, the way the program was delineated, it actually allowed them to be the beneficiary as well. My position has been, and it always has been, that affirmative action at the higher educational position is a class project, is a project of generally black, petite, bourgeois, uh, upper middle class, and it's a class entry project. And I think that if we believe that there is some value in the project, 
it has to be set up in a way where it opens up its valve to people who are economically disparaged and considers race, but doesn't exclude those who are economically disparaged from other races as well. I've always, for quite a long time, for the majority of my life, realized that affirmative action was going to be on its death knell from the Baki decision in 1973, realizing that the posture of the United States had become so hostile to racial redress and racial democracy that some type of social democracy had to be uh, used to replace those type of programs, meaning that the notion that America was going to tolerate a race-based exception to the normal functioning of American society in order to deal with the grievance of black people, I realized early on had a short, short waiting life. And I think that the best way to deal with these problems of the actual dis disparities that black people suffer is to make these remedies class-based. So instead of simply saying that a third generation, fourth generation black kid who goes to Martha's Vineyard every summer and whose parents live in, say, the Hamptons, should be able to be a beneficiary of affirmative action and go to Harvard, I would say that he should be the, the kid who grew up in, you know, the projects of, of Brownsville, who did well enough in high school, as well as the white kid who went to South, who went to Southie, should be beneficiaries based on their economic condition. And I think that's the best way to remedy these questions. And that's the only way we have some type of redistributive pattern in edge higher education that allows us to consider the background of individual candidates without discriminating, or else we're always going to fall into this trap. Now, this is for the black elite is going to be a major sticking point because they always see affirmative action as one of the linchpins of their entryism into you know the ruling class. I personally think that you know the jig is up as far as that's concerned, and I would also find that I'm not surprised that as a means of trying to compensate for the loss of this agenda, many people are turning to concepts like reparations as an alternative, as to find a way to maintain a protection for the racial democracy that I think is always going to be an elite project and not be a beneficiary to the majority of blacks who are poor and working class. Can you explain the Baki decision? The Baki decision was the early 1970s, I think 1973 Supreme Court decision that relegated the, the uh, utility to affirmative action to a certain time frame, and I think it actually removed the quota system from you what was uh, able to be used at that time and made it just a general application. Uh, Kuba, I know you uh, are very against affirmative action when it comes to Ewok stormtroopers. Uh, do you know we'll have to redesign the uniforms? Uh, they can barely hold one of those blasters, let alone um, targeted accurately, although that, that's a problem with the full size stormtroopers too. But think about the helmets. That's going to be like 40% more materials. It's insane. Plus, are you really going to tell some good old stock human stormtroopers that they have to shower with a bunch of fur balls? <laughs> What is your take on the Supreme Court affirmative action? Well, the part of me that um, has my old Eastern Bloc mentality um, just sees education as technical training, which should be uh, rolled out 
by aptitude. Um, and that the more meaningful interventions come downstream in secondary education, elementary education, um, family support, um, health, nutrition, so that the exam that you one takes when they're 16 is um, measuring at least how well you did on the exam rather than uh, were your parents wealthy enough to um, give you every conceivable advantage that uh, the economic system otherwise uh, wouldn't provide. Um, and I think that one, if we move away from specifically uh, affirmative action at conventional universities, then, and talk about secondary um, or other uh, tertiary education as a whole, the United States has shortages of many kinds of skilled um, labor and applied specialists. One reason why, and you know, this is a bit of a spoiler for um, where I'm going in my segment, mm -hmm. that so much uh, manufacturing is conducted outside of the United States, even if it's for American companies and even if final assembly takes place in the U.S., is because of an underinvestment in that strata of skilled technical labor, you know, like a kind of yep. a manufacturing equivalent of NCOs, um, that you have um, basically a failure of um, capacity um, in uh, technically demanding but unglamorous uh, positions. And the consequences of that are you can't prototype things in the U.S. Um, you might be able to make um, one very specialized product if um, you're an extraordinary kind of like innovation company, but the major producers all do... Um, applied innovation and especially prototype production in Asia because they're, um, they have very demanding um, college entry programs. And if you aren't, if you don't get into a university, then those are still very trained young people that can uh, then be apprenticed into extremely valuable, uh, uniquely skilled um, uh, workers that uh, serve as the the backbone of the more sophisticated industries there. That's interesting. So we should be building more uh, institutions like that, more programs like that, and the whole bottleneck around um, college admissions. The reason that it's so important is because of this gatekeeping and hoarding of opportunity in fields that um, are basically bullshit jobs, marketing. Um, certain kinds of administration, uh, political entrepreneurship, uh, media communications. Mm -hmm. and these are uh, career paths that don't require a four-year degree, and in some ways the four-year degree is wasted on people who enter them. Um, and yet that skews the distribution of, of jobs in that direction. Um, there right. needs to be more of a technical focus, and that would democratize... Um, and expand tertiary education um, while also having significant material benefits for the economy. Yeah. There you go, Vaughn. Can I talk to this? The, I mean, this is my day job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so I come to sing the song of the end of the university as we know it eventually. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. One is the bullshit jobs slash interleague competition that we are talking about is literally becoming a huge net drain on actual resources. Um, and two, there is a sense in which the entire education system in the 90s for reasons, frankly, of being fucking cheap, um, geared away from the kinds of technical position that Kuba's talking about. We dropped a lot of uh, the intermediate programs, programs for engineering mm-hmm. programs at the high school level. We dropped a lot of technical vocational training programs for technicians, um, et cetera. Um, off of the idea that basically we would do primary extraction here, get good quality inputs, have it built in Asia, and then bring it back here for finishing, and also have designers and managers, etc. Um, we have tried to fix this by channeling this into the quote STEM uh, push. But most of what that's done is actually an attempt to drive this for high-skilled science jobs. Um, and it has, actually, because the only, like, true, there's only actual very subsets of engineering and coding where we actually have the people with the degrees line up to what we need. Um, what A lot of what we actually need are what we would call highly skilled but not really collegiate kinds of technical expertise. And yes... There's a ton of that in Asia. Now, to tie this back to to, to affirmative action, um, I mean, affirmative action as a program was always kind of a weird uh, development. And uh, one of the things that's happened under affirmative action quotas is, uh, we, well, excuse me, we don't have quotas anymore, but the unspoken nebulous gooeyness that college admissions officers use that stand in for quotas uh, is... Um, creating the conditions of a kind of uh, minority backlash against other minority groups. We see this in the development of things like ADOS, of which affirmative action actually plays a key role. Why? Because colleges don't want to see their scores go down and they don't really want to invest the money to do the kind of remediation that high, high needs poverty based communities really need. All right. So how do they meet the diversity requirements? international acceptance rates mm-hmm. um and so one of the ironies of of affirmative action is that for a lot in a lot of community colleges you have seen an increase of people of color going to the schools under high debt loads but for things like very elite schools a lot of what you see is Im- is immigrants filling in those quotas which has caused a backlash I think legitimately in the community. Um, And it really hit home with me when I was looking at the recent stats that even though college has gotten more diverse in its acceptance uh, amongst all levels, and in fact, even to the point that in most elite colleges now, most of the white acceptance acceptance is almost all in legacy acceptance, uh, yet colleges are less economically diverse than they were 20 years ago. All right. And if the average African-American was benefiting from that, that could not be true. And 
Uh, just to pick up on, on what Pascal was saying about affirmative action as a class-based program, uh, the, on the flip side of it, it's also a bourgeois neoliberal program to um, create a PMC and a property class that can be described as broadly representative of the society because that's the extent of the justice and solidarity imagination of neoliberalism. Now that now that you have diverse um, colleges, our work here is done. Well, it's uh, the worst example of a DEI initiative that does not do any kind of real redistribution because all it does is talk about who, how do we rearrange the deck chairs at the top to make sure that we have an elite faction of multiple representation. But there is truth to the reality that at these elite schools, what you see is that at the peak periods of affirmative action, it's not even poor and working class black kids or even elite black kids. It's mostly immigrant African children who are coming and whose parents either came from Africa or they came themselves who are benefiting from those programs. And that's problematic. And I will admit that without a question. But the same, at the same time, part of the problem I have with this conversation is that we're still arguing over 12 deck chairs when we're dealing with a community of 42 million black people right. who are not even getting working class jobs. I, I think that the focus should be less on the demographics of the elite and more on the relative material position of um, the working class, which other states, even capitalist bourgeois states, can recognize is essential to the overall health, the sovereignty, the defense of uh, the society, the economy, and the country. Um, it's a major weakness of the American system that, um, A, it doesn't skill native-born um, native born students adequately um, if they're from uh, working-class families, and B, middle-class or better, uh, Americans, uh, native-born Americans, don't really want to study. It's seen as an outsider um, activity, something that compensates for failures in the real virtues, which are popularity, charm, status, access, um, athletic ability. Yep. But I mean, you, you kind of called it early on, Kuba, and this is one of the first lessons I learned actually in high school. Um, I got to teach a, a remedial math class my senior year and then the teacher that took a liking to me that allowed me to do that took me aside early on because 187 was going on at, the, at this time when I was in uh, high school and her husband was uh, part of the dean of admissions at Cal and, uh, and she was basically breaking down everything you said Kuba about the fact that even if you had some sort of advantage and got into a university you're competing against people that had so many more advantages than you, you know, even saying you brought up having like a, a solid home structure, you know, um, if you look at the admission scandal that happened uh, right before COVID with, was it UC Berkeley, Columbia, I forget how many schools were involved in it. Uh, USC was involved in it as well. But these parents that were paying for this kind of side door in because they couldn't uh, afford to build buildings to get their children in and they weren't legacy themselves. Um, these kids still had massive advantages to get into schools, especially when it comes to like SAT preparedness, 
they were still going to uh, top end high schools. And yet still their parents felt it was necessary uh, for them to pay, get them into these uh, quote unquote elite universities. Because they're de-skilled. I mean, so I, I know we don't like talking about generational patterns in socialist world for some reason, but literally a lot of these families of petite bourgeois and not even, you know, we talk about these middle class. A lot of them are middle class off of land speculation and luck and tech investment. Um, their children aren't skilled and they don't have cycles of work to watch, to model that on either. And so Cuba's quite white that you don't have an incentive system amongst that group of people um, to encourage study or technical expertise anymore. We haven't seen that in the U.S. since the 60s. Or ironically, um, we have the on paper the most educated society that the world has ever known, and yet it is focused primarily on these kinds of things that Cuba's talking about. I mean, the, one of the things that I realized really late, and I realized it too late actually for myself uh, as a former working class kid who was taught all this bullshit and believed it, is that um, going to college isn't gonna do that much for you unless you know how to network. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, it's just yep. simply that true. Absolutely. We learned that at Kim's wedding. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and for, so even if these affirmative action programs actually did what they said they did, the entire system is still rigged against that, but they don't do it anyway. Like it's, you know, you do have to think about training, better schooling, et cetera. And I can guarantee you that you're going to get pushback from almost every element of American society right now. Um, and, and, and normally I, I'm the person saying this is not just an American problem. This actually is primarily an American problem. You do see similar trends in Britain and France, um, but you don't see it in Canada. You don't see it in, in Norway. You don't even see it in Spain. Um, and that is that education is largely devalued except at high level credentialing. So there's no, there's nobody really believes in schooling as anything other than, than basically free childcare. And, and um, networking. I mean, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I was talking to a, a, a Hollywood insider on Friday in LA and he was telling me about how people get writing jobs because their kid goes to the same kid as the showrunner and, uh, it was, it was a very interesting conversation, very illuminating. That and being one, one of the things I just want to end on this show, it, for Pascal, me it's time. Uh, I, is that I don't want to dismiss affirmative action for the one value as an anti-discrimination vehicle. In that, if you didn't have the program, most some most of these places would have no Negroes at all, quite frankly. And that's what's happened in the places that got rid of affirmative action i.e. California, i.e. Texas, et cetera. So I actually think that they, in that regard, there is at least some value at that point. Well, I mean, it's clear to me that the Supreme Court wants to get rid of it for totally reactionary reasons, right? They're not doing what we want, which is like making American public school better. That's that's actually completely not going to happen. You know, I mean, and 
I didn't bring it up when you guys asked me what what uh, what articles I was like. Do I want to talk about the destruction of American public schools through activist PTAs and uh, and parent orgs? Do I want to talk about? So ultimately, I decided to talk about global politics. But um, the American public school system is fucked. All right, like, and it's not going to get better anytime soon. Um, the polarization of all knowledge, like the idea that, that there is a liberal and conservative way to talk about fucking math is, mm. is, uh, you know, and there's, a, and there's a racial way to talk about math too, which is bizarre. You know, like both these, these, these ideas are common on all parts of the political spectrum. Now it's totally toxic to building technical skills. It, it makes it seem like technical expertise is itself a politicized function and and yeah in some abstract way in the way we talk about the development of professional classes it is but in like the sense that physics only works a couple of fucking ways it's absolutely not and um, I'd, I'd also chime in that when you degrade the value of teaching as a career um, you lower the economic benefits that come with it to the point where you have to accept property wages. You work at, a, at private schools, but public public teachers are not highly regarded by most Americans. Um, the labor movement is trying to, to push that in the right direction, but uh, you know, it was in the United States that I learned the expression: "Those who can do, those who can't teach." And um, when those are the material conditions, um, the people that you get as teachers are either ones who couldn't get a more economically secure um, career or people who are motivated uh, by ideology, by purpose, by mission. And... Sometimes it's humanitarian. Sometimes it's um, it's it's yeah. uh, humanistic, but sometimes it can also be weirdly ideological. Well, yeah. look, we can talk about this. Hold on, Derek. We can Let's talk about this for quite some time, and uh, we we try to get this show done in an hour. <laughs> if you guys want to expand on this, we have the champagne room. We can go expand on these things because it's time. Another expression in America, Cuba, and it's you niggas went too long. <laughs> Another expression for you. Uh, and I want to say, also, sh there's a lot of people in the chat who I haven't seen in a while. I'm sure you guys are noticing it too, Pascal and Toussaint. Um, and we have a celebrity in the in the chat, Sean KB. From the anti have another celebrity also, not to step on Sean KB. We had uh, Dan Mello. Dan Mello. Author extraordinaire. Uh, so, Derek, it looks like Bibi Netanyahu is about to return to power in Israel. And this is Again. after a center-right party put a stop to his 10-year run. How did this happen, and what does it mean, not just for Israel, but on the global stage? You know, I spent a lot of my time thinking about the global end of politics because I think uh, the United States, there's a way in which we have to really understand the agency of other countries in the way even the United States operates, particularly in uh, 
uh, what we often call American decline, but what we should really call global capitalist decline because America's relative power actually is staying despite declining. Um, uh, but that does not seem to be immediately the case in Israel until you look at the fact that uh, um, Israel is developing an independent identity from the U.S. bloc. And that identity is, frankly, somewhat more scary than its identity when it was, you know, part of the the, the uh, U.S. umbrella apparatus. And what I mean by that is Netanyahu's victory actually might even endanger its relationship to the United States. Now, it's never going to really? truly decouple it. Yes. Um, it's never going to truly decouple it. Of course not. There's APAC. We'll make sure that doesn't happen. And U.S. interests are, you know, played out. But in uh, played out with it, Israel being what it is in the Middle East. But as the U.S. is more energy independent, Israel's less and less important to U.S. geo strategy too. And that's something I think people miss. Um, but what does this mean for Bibi Netanyahu and his return? Well. You're stuck with a conundrum right now. Since the Kadima split and the, and the end of labor at the end of the 1990s, uh, the Israeli left has had to deal with the fact that left-wing Zionism has pretty much always been a lie. What do you do with that? And what a lot of people have done is vote with their feet and leave. And so what you've seen is a lot of secular Jews and a lot of Jewish leftists returning to the United States and to Germany in particular, whereas uh, Jews from Russia have been uh, from the Soviet Union have been coming in um, and you've seen an increasing uh, nationalism and conservatism amongst the the Mazrahi and Sephardi populations of Israel, not just the Ashkenazi. And in fact, the, the current Netanyahu coalition is almost as much, probably even a little more, um, Mazrahi and Sephardic than it is Ashkenazi. Now, for those who don't understand the the, the developments of that, and, and it's not really correct to think, oh, Sephardi Jews and Mazrahi Jews, not white, Ashkenazi white, I'm a, in so much that I'm that I have Jewish heritage. My Jewish heritage is actually Sephardic. Uh, it's not Ashkenazic. And in fact, the, the majority of Jewish ancestry, uh, ancestry in the United States before uh, the great migrations in World War II uh, were Sephardic. So the, the think about it in terms of white and not white is a little bit wrong. But what we can see is the assumption that the settler project in Israel was largely an Ashkenazi project is no longer true. Um, we also have seen that the Druzi and other minority groups within Israel uh, are, are becoming very supportive of the state and are apathetic to the dominance of um, the right. And we need to look at the parties in which Likud is actually building its coalition because this should be this should actually scare people. Historically speaking, Netanyahu always had a limit. Um, there were center-right parties in his coalition. With 
with the kind of pact that became the 36 government um, of Israel uh, last year with the center-right coalition, um, including uh, the Liberal Party and uh, Ra'am, which is a, um, a kind of center-right Islamist party, uh, that seems to have radicalized a lot of people and neutralized a lot of others. Um, uh, Meretz, which is the other left-wing party which vote shares with labor, has almost completely collapsed. It, it, it doesn't. It is no longer meeting the threshold to be represented in the parliament. Um, that is the peace party. Labor has four seats. Meaning that we are in a predicament, and this is a predicament of the realization of the problems of Zionism. You know, I am an anti-Zionist, and so I don't want people to take this the wrong way. But if all the left of Israel leaves because they abandoned the Zionist project, and none of them stay to form a coalition government with any Arab parties, there will only be further and further right parties in Israel. Mm. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Yeah, but it's also it's also not uh, one question is even if you added up all the emigres in the U.S. in Europe elsewhere uh, that left together with the uh, discouraged remnants uh, within Israel, is that even enough to stop um, right wing ascension? Because if it isn't, then you're just going back. Um, to punish yourself. I mean, the, the question is interesting, and that is if they make coalition with the center-rightist and liberals, yes, but barely. Um, but the thing is, you, you're, you're kind of fucked either way. This is this is kind of the, 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 the state that we find ourselves in. Um, it's a little you, like... Mm-hmm. It, it, it would be a little like um, telling... Um, Zoroastrians or Iranian Jews that if they don't go back to Iran to make common cause with the liberals, then um, the it's just going to be the Islamic Republic forever, which may be true, but also um, it's probably just going to be the Islamic Republic forever. Um, well, but, I mean, um, there's one, one thing that I wanted to pick up on when you're describing the Druze and other religious minorities becoming more and more in your right-wing rule. That sounds a lot to me like the Bashar al-Assad offer in Syria, that the what is enabling that, uh, enabling a minority that is not the, the titular group of um, the nationalist project to get comfortable, is fear of the alternative. And um, the condition of... Uh, Palestinian life, especially in the Gaza Strip, has beca- has been so harsh for so long that um, you, it's no surprise that there isn't a great appetite for for peace, but instead an appetite for militancy and revenge um, with uh, towards uh, the state that's been imposing an apartheid style um, system uh, across the territories. 
Pascal, do you have anything you want to add? No, I think this is this is a zero zero sum game for the Palestinians. I think the fact that Netanyahu is back in power and he is empowered by the fact that now he has legitimacy means that you know the bad old days are coming here and here they go. They're worse than that because there's now no check. Like, I, I want, I do want people to understand this. The parties that back um, Lakud, uh, the Shahs and you know, United Torah Judaism, um, uh, the 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 religious Zionist party are uh, uh, um, and the Kahanist now explicitly. Uh, and if you don't know who, 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 what Kahanist are, and unfortunately, <laughs> I actually have relatives. Um, um, Mir Kahan is technically a, a very distant cousin of mine. Um, uh, Kahanism is uh, a defensive Israeli uh, nationalism that is totally okay with being eliminated, a nationist explicitly towards the Palestinians um you know they they have instigated terror attacks and they are part of this coalitionary government um they're and you also have um haradic non-zionist parties who are willing to make a coalition with this government so these are uh, ultra orthodox who are not zionist who also have a vision of Airsoft's Israel, but they don't consider the Zionist government legitimate. And a lot of the demands of these other parties is a is a fundamental um, politicization of the legal process, uh, re-empowering the Sanhedrin, uh, disempowering the Supreme Court, um, and, and things like this. Uh, the Sanhedrin. Yes. Like in the Bible. Yes, there's a Sanhedrin. That, like, that ended well. <laughs> um, uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, you know, um, already actually oversees marriage law. So, you know, this is why if you if you don't if you if someone's marrying a non-Jew, you have to leave Israel and go to, you know, Cyprus to get married and come back. Um, uh, even if you're marrying someone who's kind of Jewish, but uh, isn't orthodox enough for the Haradi. Um, I I. The only thing now that is holding Israel back is balancing between concerns of its relationship with Russia, the United States, and um, and China, because it has relationships with all three, and and it has some, you know, I mean, it has a lot of unofficial relationships with nations like Saudi Arabia, et cetera, that while they're not official because it would be vastly unpopular, they're definitely the case. Um, this is not good for peace in the region at all. It's not good for um, uh, normalization of relationships with Iran, which we've already kind of botched, but it, you know, there's now less and less reason to hope for that it's not good uh for a, a lot of things but what i find interesting and i think is is missed is that israel is not as concerned about its relationship with the u.s in the same way anymore despite all the you know the the money it gets from the camp david accords uh etc 
um, that that is not as pertinent to its goals or developed general goals. It, it, it it's also increasingly not that concerned about what the American diaspora thinks. Um, because they're probably dirty descenders anyway, right? As we've already talked about. So this really will change the dynamics of it. So notice when I said, you know, in the beginning, I said, with the Israeli left leaving, there's no one there to represent it. I also am not arguing that anyone should stay. All right. Um, I, I I would get out personally, and you will notice that even though I could make Aliyah, you don't see me fucking doing it. So um, I would not encourage anyone to have any illusions about a left-wing Zionism or even a post-Zionism. Um, I also want to put out, though, to, to for people's, you know, if it, to understand how dire the situation is, the two-state solution is not viable. It being maintained is means that things can only move right, and both sides. Why do you say that? Have you looked at a map of Israel? Yeah. What, look at the what what the two state solution would require some joint state to govern over a very small piece of land. Mm -hmm. It's not a viable solution, and it never was. And while it doesn't seem obvious, the two-state solution was actually always a concession to the Zionists, because what the Zionists are afraid of is that uh, they won't, in a, in a truly democratic post-Palestinian state of which Jews were allowed to live, they would not have significant political power because they would not be the majority of the population, um, which is kind of factually true. So the one state solution people which is what i you know was what i historically have been although i i no longer see it on the table um uh was an answer where okay you know have a secular state it's going to be dominated largely by by you know muslim part by muslim parties and palestinians um but if you weren't fucking with them so hard it wouldn't have been so bad but that ship has also sailed what i, I am I know it's unpopular, but personally, I'm a proponent of the zero state solution. <laughs> the Jerusalem that should go to the Pope, as God intended. <laughs> and and uh, the rest of the territory, I think, would make uh, a very nice uh, golf course and scuba club. Well, it is sort of an argument for bringing back the Ottoman Empire. But, oh my goodness! Like, <laughs> um, no, uh, my brother. <laughs> I mean, but you know, I, I, I really, the, the, the future of this will depend on. I don't know what it actually depends on. I mean, like, it, it, a lot of it's going to depend on how Palestine itself. Uh, responds and what Arab Israelis do in response to this, but it's it's hard to see a way forward. Most of the uh, most of the Arab Israeli political parties are are coalitionary and marginalized, and part of what people believe freaked out a, a lot of the remaining young people 
into turning away from the center-right coalition to the far-right coalition uh, is the presence of Ra'am in the coalitionary base. So the fact that there was any um, uh, Arab-Israeli representation in the government at all uh, was part of a radicalizing factor. Um, I also think that last year gave a lot of people a lot of false hope on a bunch of international victories. Um, and we are seeing the payback on that. Um, well, I, I also think that we shouldn't lose sight of what the prospects are uh, on the Palestinian side. And the reality is that they're quite dismal. Um, there's no way to, um, there's no way to negotiate. There's also no way to, to fight. And uh, Gaza has become an open-air prison. Um, yep. And while conditions in the West Bank are more humane, it's been um, cut up into such tiny slices uh, with each of them potentially becoming a closed open-air prison um, at some point if uh, the population is deemed too militant or too aggressive or somebody wants to build a settlement there. Right. And the Palestinians can't go anywhere. Either. Yes, I mean, precisely. The, um, let's and get to Jordan, I guess. The, and that's part of a, um, part of an old Arab strategy for the crisis, which was essentially keep Palestinians where they are. Don't let them leave. Uh, the pre 1949 borders of, um, Israel, um, uh, included a great deal of territory that uh, belonged or was settled by um, Arabs, Christians, and Muslims that fled. But once they fled, then that was it. You're not getting that territory back. If Palestinians migrate en masse out of Gaza, out of the West Bank, then Israel will simply uh, annex those territories and um, claim game over. But the prospect for the individual lives of Palestinians staying, especially in Gaza, is bleak. Um, but Egypt, other Arab countries, um, don't want to accept a large Palestinian population for fear of the consequences to their own domestic politics, the economic costs associated with uh, traumatized, impoverished population coming into countries which are, tend to also be traumatized and impoverished. Yeah. Um, and it's useful to have this pool of human desperation and pain and suffering that potentially be weaponized at some point. And one question is, will it be weaponized around an anti-Israeli Palestinian cause or will it be, will it be weaponized by groups such as ISIS in a um, Sunni um, eschatological project? It turns out that that appeal also has legs, um, and we'll see what the future of um, Arab regional uh, political movements are, and uh, not not the Abraham Accords where you have ultra-rich sheikhs making deals with um, ultra-rich Israelis, but uh, in the mass movements in countries like Lebanon, Syria, uh, Egypt especially. Yeah, Egypt. You know, I lived there for two years. It's 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 a major part of uh, of my current 
identity and understanding of the world. I was also there as it as it was one of the few states accepting a ton of Syrian and Yemeni refugees, of which it had no real way to accommodate, except you know hoping that they made okay uh, taxi drivers. And I'm not, you know, I know that sounds super cynical, but it's true. Um, and they also have a very young population, which is now trying to get into Europe. And we've seen the accumulation of bodies on those borders. Um, and unfortunately, the United States has less and less reason to give a shit. Um, and I know that that surprises people, but part of their Hadrian's walling off of the empire that's happening right now is them going, well, we don't really care about the Middle East anymore. We have plenty of oil here mm -hmm. and we're going to use it now. Like, yeah, we don't want the Saudis really messing with the oil price on the larger market, but the Saudis are proving that they don't really care about this stuff either. So we can just back off. And, and, and for people who don't think the, you know, there are elements of the right wing who've been talking about this for years, you know, that it's time to pull back from our, from our Middle Eastern, it, it, because it's not crucial to the empire anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't use, they don't admit they're being an empire. Well, some of them do actually, but most of them admit they're being an empire. And, and that also means like there's, there's little reason for the United States to weigh in either direction on Israeli stuff. Th they might talk a good game, you know, politically for the first time ever on Palestinian rights. They might, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to say, but it's a possibility now, I mean, but it will have Palestine, zero effect. It's just, uh, it's just Xinjiang West, except there's more of a constructive relationship with uh, Jerusalem than there is with Beijing. Well, right. speaking of China, uh, we are officially over an hour. and I'm going to get Matt Damon. And instead of cutting this uh, show short and cutting Cuba's news story, which I think is also equally as important, we're going to keep it going. We're going to do some free... Champagne room time for you guys. Just because these guys wouldn't stop and they never watch the clock. The um, MT, well, you're supposed to cut them off like the Oscars. That's what you're supposed to do, MT. You, you've got to uh, start playing that music um, with the sudden spike in volume if uh, you keep going. <laughs> That's that's what I'll do from now on. When you guys go too long, there's gonna be a, there's gonna be music that I play. When you hear this, you hear this right here. It starts getting louder. That's some Slenderman shit, right? <laughs> like that's that's yeah. how you know. That's how you know. It's like once that plays. Uh oh. Rapid. Oh no! T to the panic room. Um, <laughs> So we're going to give you guys some, some free stuff tonight. Is that okay, MT? Yes. Go for it. Okay. I got to ask the boss lady before we do this stuff. So Cuba, <laughs> the Tesla that is put together in the state is mostly made of Chinese parts. And I've already touched on um, some of what I wanted to say earlier in the context well, of education. But Well, tell us, tell us more about, about these Chinese parts and Teslas. Um, and, uh, you know, make sure we get banned from Twitter before we even get our blue check mark. So um, the essential components of a Tesla, um, the batteries, the electric um, 
engine, the drivetrain, uh, the body, um, and also the charging hardware and equipment for um, docking stations. All of those physical components are manufactured by one or more Chinese um, suppliers and then um, installed in Tesla machines for, uh, for sale, nominally American product. The, what Tesla contributes in terms of technology is largely the software um, and the design. Um, the software, including an AI which is not street ready um, and might decapitate you under a, a semi truck if um, it's turning left at the wrong time. Um, so even the main contribution of Tesla to its own vehicles is uh, questionable. Um, it hasn't, like a lot of Silicon Valley uh, innovations oh, over the last 20 years, it was announced long before it was ready, and we're still holding our breath to, to see that brought about. <laughs> Even if the AI were technically um, safe or effective on American roads, there's going to be a long march through the regulatory bureaucracies before it can be rolled out on things like internet, interstate highways or um, uh, the main public uh, road infrastructure. After all, um, those um, that infrastructure covers multiple jurisdictions and uh, there's multiple bureaucracies at the state and federal level that have a say in what can drive on uh, road systems. Now, pivoting back to China, why is it that these um, this equipment is all manufactured over there? Well, while the United States was busy offshoring as much of its manufacturing uh, capacity, uh, China sees the opportunity to uh, accomplish a significant transfer of skills from um, the West, especially the United States, into its domestic economy. It has that class of uh, capable, highly skilled, highly professional uh, machinists that can uh, mill and assemble um, parts from a variety of materials that can innovate improvements, iterative improvements through the process um, and are available much more cheaply than uh, in the United States. Um, the part of that has to do with the fact that um, while businesses in the U.S. Um, have a great deal of leverage in um, their hiring and firing, uh, you know, at will is common in most in, in many states, and disposability is seen as a as a great asset for any um, new person brought onto a job. Um, the alternative being, of course, labor movements, and we see how um, how Starbucks and, and other major American employers react when they're confronted with the need to collectively bargain. Uh, in China, essentially, the state enforces a um, particular package for um, workers and can make that stick economy-wide. Uh, indeed, there's uh, a less um, 
aggressive or a less strict variant that's the case in um, Scandinavia, what they call flex security. Um, you get benefits that don't depend on, aren't tied to a particular employer. So you can move from job to job while uh, retaining um, a, a significant portion of your uh, like material well-being. Now, this has consequences in a number of ways. We're seeing one that um, the United States weapons stockpiles are dwindling and we appear to be on the cusp of a new wave of rearmament. Uh, two, uh, the United States is trying to hamstring uh, the Chinese economy and especially Chinese tech development and innovation through measures such as the uh, chip uh, import ban. And uh, three, there's a uh, what COVID showed was the vulnerability of the United States to um, supply uh, supply chain disruptions, um, and the number of products, the number of essential basic products that um, the U.S. Uh, only receives as imports. If that plan to wean yourself off of um, Chinese exports is going to be effective, well, you're going to need to close that skills gap or you're going to need to accept uh, much higher prices for um, intermediate parts uh, to the point where a, a Tesla becomes um, 10 times more expensive just because of the limited number of uh, limited amount of labor that can produce that uh, hardware domestically. Last week, uh, when we were talking about the um, when we were talking about the Chinese chip ban, um, or on an earlier episode when we were talking about the Chinese chip ban, I was last week. I was skeptical that um, it would achieve any of its goals because the Chinese um, economy has already absorbed a great deal of advanced technical skills, um, and Chinese students continue to be overrepresented even at American universities in uh, the most advanced technical fields. So rather than um, weakening China by cutting them off from the most advanced uh, chip designs, you may end up in a situation where the United States finds itself cut off from um, the prototype design and manufacturing um, and the hardware suppliers that are essential for its economy, and not just civilian either, but um, a lot of intermediate inputs are imported um, within um, arms and weapon systems production. I, I would um, I would posit a third option, which is that, that both A and B kind of happens, in which the United States does damage the Chinese economy and slow their innovation, but doesn't benefit locally from any of that because it doesn't have the skills to do it, which I think is actually kind of the most likely outcome to, you know, um, well, I think that um, China can be set back, but can well, ge generate the missing technology itself given enough time. I agree. Um, however, I, there's a an optimism on China that I tend to want to push back on, not because of politics, which is, I think, what people misunderstand me. It's because of the age of its workforce. Um, and, and that, that may be, 
I suspect that is what U.S. planners are hoping is the disrupting factor um, because they have nothing over here. Um, all that said, though, I mean, I, I am at a loss when we have the Fed actively admitting that it's trying to collapse the U.S. labor market on how the blue fuck they're going to be able to also reskill it and and build up technical expertise in areas beyond like steel production. I mean, we US does the US is still a large manufacturer um, of finished products and of raw product, but it's that intermediate that we totally lost and I think you're absolutely right on that. And that intermediate's actually what employs the most people. The other two parts don't. Um the um and automation is I remember when Andrew Yang was uh, concerned about the job-destroying dimension of uh, automation. Basic manufacturing is heavily automatable, and the most advanced is often uh, labor-scarce. Uh, for instance, chip designs don't require a, a large workforce to produce. Right. It's an immediate workforce where there's a lot of play. Um, incidentally, that's also where you're, the leadership of uh, militant labor movements tends to come from. Yep, it is. It's, you know, skilled but un skilled but uncredentialed. Uncredentialed, not uneducated labor Lula. is it, yeah um is where a lot of it is, and most of it is in China. Which is why, by the way, even with the Chinese government's package, you see more <sighs> labor radicalism in China than anywhere else in the world. That and the fact that. Uh, there's been a whole lot of, of class integration between different kinds of laborers, laborers because of things like the Cultural Revolution for all of its faults um, that we never had in the U.S. Uh, our, we have whole sections, not just whole classes, whole sections of classes that don't really deal with each other on a day-to-day -day basis. We're even segregated in housing in that way. Um, and, and I think, like... <laughs> It looks like the United States and a willingness to return to the Cold War mentality is, you know, may hurt China and also hurting itself. And for people who go, well, the West is screwed, too. I think they know that. Like everybody knows that both China, like all the, quote, developed countries of which China now should be considered one of, um, have an aging labor population. All of them, um, which is the great irony of letting all the, you know, the stuff, the chaos at the borders go on is that there is a real fear of all that labor, but there's also in not being able to integrate it, but there's also a real need for it. Um, and well, this is one reason why um, the United States has uh, the elite, regardless of the rhetoric has largely been uh, phlegmatic about large scale Latin American um, migration yeah. because that is the type of labor they want, um, desperate, impoverished, yep. um, eager to serve. Yeah. And even and it's actually a two generational boost because the children of unskilled Latin American immigrants in the United States uh, that have an opportunity for citizenship and that um, get educated themselves, it's um, they have the same pattern as. Um, other first generation, second generation immigrant communities where that's a group that's much more likely to take education seriously, see it as an opportunity, apply themselves heavily um, and seek out those kinds of NCO in the economy roles as well as actually being NCOs in the 
U.S. armed services. Yeah. Um, so the classic neoliberal solution to the aging um, population problem has always been mass migration. That is a um, a harder sell in I mean, places like Japan and China. Wasn't that the benefit of uh, ending the Bracero program in the 60s? You had all this new labor that was stuck on this side of the border right at the same time where black people get all these rights and an entry into a lot of the unions. Yes, but also kind of. I mean, one of the things that that, that in the West, the Becerra program, the the limitations on on Asian immigration until the 1970s, etc., a lot of that was also to keep groups at odds with each other mm-hmm. um, because you were constantly flipping between whether or not you were privileging, for example, Latin or Asian labor and who was the model minority who actually changed a lot in the 20th century. Uh, it was the development of things like mass schooling in China that actually probably solidified a lot of these things that we now racialize as stereotypes. Um, I think that's that's a huge deal. Um, I also, you know, when we talk about this in terms of states, a lot of these states are having problems. I mean, China's having problems that I think we weren't predicting, too. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, when we talk about Teslas, I think Tesla's is like the funniest thing about this. You know, we, we've known this about Apple. Apple does this, is an American company. It hires a lot of American workers. It uses a lot of American materials, but they're still fucking manufactured in China because they have the cop, the, the expertise to do it. And the and the machinery to do it, and we more or less don't. And the labor force. Yeah, I mean, we we don't really have the labor force. I mean, the other thing is we like we keep on talking about renationalization and all this, but unless a lot of you, you know, humanities degrees people want to go into the factories, all of a sudden, we don't have the labor force for that. Now, maybe you will because a lot of these jobs are becoming shittier and shittier and shittier. Um, uh, you know, and there are days as a teacher that, I, that, uh, a good old factory job actually sounds pretty good to me, but, um, we forget that that was largely unattractive for a large part of the 20th century. I mean, there, it wasn't just a conspiracy to kill industrialization is why workers left it. Um, but, uh, on, I would, I would, uh, contrast that with, uh, Europe. And um, to a certain extent, Japan, where those um, comparatively speaking, uh, factory and industrial manufacturing jobs, uh, pay is better, benefits are better, vacations are longer. You don't hate it so much. It's not such a bad deal. Um, In the Um, United States, um, improvement in material and mid-century material standards was largely due to exit from industrial labor, while in other, I would argue, more enlightened um, developed economies, it was through the improvement of the conditions of um, industrial labor. This is your social democracy showing through. But um, (laughs) um, Where's the lie, my friend? Where's the lie? Well, the the thing is, uh, Europe's economy is kind of collapsing right now, so it's it's interesting to talk about that as a, both a truth, but also because I agree with you. There's nothing you didn't say anything wrong there, but um, it, it took one energy shock to turn Germany from a net importer. I mean, from a net exporter to a net importer in a year. 
I mean, it took that, one energy. It took one energy shock to uh, bring down Jimmy Carter and yeah, um, totally. make the United States into an industrial basket case. Yep, and and that has always been the problem with these Keynesian style industrial production programs. But but being without them is worse, right? I mean, clearly, uh, China really has tried to particularly particularly since she has actually taken rural labor problems seriously, which is something the last, uh, Hu Jintao kind of did, but Xi, uh, Xi Jinping and, and Deng did not. Uh, uh, there, there's been some stabilization there. Zero COVID's been a problem for them. The housing market's been a problem for them. But it, there is a real sin that like, they at least still have the technical skills to hold to hold this together. And also American business has, has been trying to benefit from this um, for a long time. Um, and ironically, for all the fears that China was going to be the people to fuck that up, it's actually the U.S. Um, screwing up largely for, I think, political reasons. Um, meanwhile, we talk about Tesla and Apple. I mean, Apple's an information company, really, and its security vectors have made that more true because it's made Google and Facebook less profitable as a way to get information. I know, I know people don't really understand that. That's part of why Meta's collapsing in addition to QE problems and stuff like that. Um, uh, the, the other thing I think we're going to see here is that uh, a lot of American tech companies are basically stock laundering <laughs> programs. I mean... How does Tesla make money? Uh, it, it's not actually its product. So, you know. Yeah, the um, the financialization of the American economy, right? It now it's more cancer than patient. Right. Exactly. Well, thank you guys so much. I think this is a very informative hour plus for you watching. We went over. This is all part of the champagne room. This is all a free champagne room we're giving you, kind of. Because we're still going to go to the champagne room in a little bit. Right, MT? Exactly. Can I just say something real quick? Of course you can. We have almost 200 viewers. And... Only 84 likes? What's up with that, you guys? Stop what you're uh, doing. Hit like, support, click on the links, do all the things. Well, uh, please hit that like button. Hit subscribe and the bell. Thank you it to the news crew. They, they, they won't let me go until it's 100 likes. <laughs> <laughs> And Toussaint has a has like a saw style um, shotgun mounted to like a, a webcam. It's just off camera; you can't see it. But uh, please, 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 we need those hundred likes. I need those hundred likes. Yeah. There's a saw style chunch- torture chamber involving water file. Like this is where we're at. <laughs> the algorithm must be placated. All those Canada Cuba has been saved and spared. You guys. Oh, another week. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Saving lives one like at a time. Well, I think it's all Derek Farn and his Kanye-esque uh, talk about Israel. 
Oh, God. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's his, uh, Charlie Brown's little sister, Bangs. <laughs> adorbs. Always, Bard. Always adorbs. God damn. You guys said I was mean to start the show. You guys are like, Jason's being mean. That was the funniest shit I've heard in weeks. <laughs> when it started the Sean King thing. <laughs> it's kind of a thing I do. Nothing is ever going to be funnier than Norman I like that. shitting on uh, Paul Prescott two minutes into the show. That was awesome. I will never be that bad. No! (laughs) Don't! I had a lookalike for Deep State Kuba, but I kind of felt like he didn't like it, and I didn't want to, like, hurt his feelings, because when he looks sad, he really looks sad. (laughs) I think it's the eyebrows. He looks really sad. Those Polish eyebrows, years of suffering, generations of of suffering white people. You guys are just on the racial humor today. I don't even know where this is coming from. I should pull a Kanye and say I'm not going to say it three times and then say it. I'm not. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. it. Daddy was a Jew. (laughs) (laughs) You got to say like Jerry Seinfeld. Kanye was just all of a sudden talking like Jerry Seinfeld. That makes extra anti-Semitic. Because it's cultural appropriation to boot. That's right. That's right. You know what? We probably refer to Jew as the J-word. J-word. Someone was on Twitter today, and they said Ben Burgess thinks it's okay to say the N-word. Where did that come from? Oh, oh, it's from the show in New York. The New York Um, show. He defended a teacher who um, was protected by a union for using the N-word um, on, like, free speech and labor power grounds. And that became. Yeah, they were trying to be like, so they had this black guy walk up to Ben and be like, so you think it's okay to say nigga? Say nigga to my face. He didn't say that, but I mean, yeah. that's what they're trying to make him say. That's how it played out in your mind? It played out kind we, of. We like need some that. fan art, chat. It, it was pretty. You got your homework. It was pretty close to that. It was pretty close to that. Like, so you think it's so, okay? We don't even know the context of the teacher saying, like the way they try to make it out. The teacher came in the classroom and was like, "So uh, it looks like all the F's are from the niggers, and uh, there's some nigger misspellings in here. That's what you niggers do." Um, it wasn't even like a Mark Twain reading. It was nothing like that. Can't even. Who knows? Hmm. But but seriously, Derek, you're a teacher in a place where there are very few niggers. Can you picture? Oh. One man, you are on fire today. Wow. <laughs> what Can you the... imagine a teacher in Utah? In Utah. Where the only N-words are on the jazz. Can you imagine a teacher coming out? And saying, hey, settle down, N-word. I, I do have a hard time imagining the context in which that would come up, in which the, also the teacher might not get beat by the entire class. <laughs> but, um, it, it, you know, it, it's... Uh, um, Maybe they were saying N-word like Sean KB. I just... Uh, <laughs> look, 
In words. <laughs> yes. I am uncomfortable right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. Okay, I'm gonna say it. That's what the teacher said. That's what the teacher said. The teacher was doing a wrestling promo. Wait, was the was the teacher DMX? Jesus. That would that would that would complicate it. That would change the narrative. The teacher was Snoop. He meant to say nephew. You said if the teacher was DMX? <laughs> Can you imagine? R.I.P. But, but ser- like, again, I, I, and the person on Twitter was just on, off their fucking rocker. But uh, there was a situation that actually really happened where uh, with a friend of ours, I won't say the name or the school, but um, a teacher was teaching, a, a professor was teaching a class on reconstruction and they were reading a sign from a picture and it had the n-word in it and they read the word and a student complained and was trying to get this teacher fired <clears throat> so to Derek's point and so I'm like you know in 20 in the last 10 years what kid isn't videotaping every situation in the class I yeah, mean, I was about to say that would be on tape. Um, if, if, if particularly if it was something that was telegraphed in any way beforehand, I've you know I've had kids try to trick me into saying things, not anything like that. Trick you into nigger? No, God no. <laughs> um, Sean KB got tricked. <laughs> With um, his singing DMX. <laughs> but, but I have had people try to trick me into saying things on camera before um, that could be taken out of context. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not like, it's not like that word hasn't, hasn't been uttered in, in hateful ways in schools, but it's hard to imagine how it would come up with the teacher unless the teacher was probably had other problems and they were looking to fire them anyway. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. You don't have to get into that. I just oh, is, this, is that Spencer Spencer? That's Spencer Spencer. We have another celebrity on the show? Shout yeah, out to Spencer Spencer. Get to see you, Spencer. Spencer pissed off so many people with that clip that Gene made of his uh, uh, Fanon episode. Thank you, Spencer. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate that. Why does Derek look so mad? Why you can't look mad with bangs? Switch it to <laughs> Angry Rachel. Yeah. Oh. Wow. I I am both uh, Sean King and Super Karen. Um, <laughs> Alpha and Omega at once. Ugh, asymmetrical action. <laughs> okay. Isn't that one of the um? Harbingers of the end times. Mm. He called it. And out of the Utahs will come a man who is both Karen and King. One K short of, you know, that group that we don't like. That's what I need is a bunch of people spelling my name with triple K's. Thanks. <laughs> 
the end time. Jeremy Sarah says the end. <laughs> 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 oh my god. Incredible. Oh my god. Look, I had something I wanted to say, and I wrote this whole thing out. I don't even know if I can get it out with a straight face now. Well, let me say something first. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was the person who originated the Kuba looks like Tintin rumor. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> the cute little flip curl in the front. Come on, man. Come on, man. I forgive you. <laughs> but this is going down in your permanent record. <laughs> I'm so mad. Like, I had this whole thing I was going to read about police stops and stuff. You know what? I'll save it for Saturday. Less stuff I have to write. Okay. That's true. Right? Yeah, we, we're going to need something for Saturday that kind of uh, neutralizes the energy because I have a feeling Warsley's coming in with all kinds of 1804 Haitian hate with the <laughs> I might be, I might be, I might be like, yo, Negro, calm down, man. So I'm, yeah, okay. So I'm gonna save this. You know what? Save it for tomorrow. Not tomorrow, Saturday. We'll, I'll save my rant for Saturday because I definitely want to get your guys' opinion on it. Um, I did want to go to the champagne room, but I feel like since we're here this long, yeah. we'll just keep doing the free show like this. Mm-hmm. If you guys like what you see and you're enjoying yourself for this last half hour and you want to support the show so we can keep doing this and entertain you and educate you, become a patron. Speaking of the N-word, I asked and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get permission to do it. So the reason why the Patreon is called Bitter Lake Presents is my band Bitter Lake. I had this idea. I was like, let's do shows that aren't all punk and metal shows. And a friend of mine is a comedian, and sometimes he opens for Chappelle. And he had this idea, and we were going, we were going on tour to, we were doing a north, we went to Brazil. We had to do a Brazil tour, and so he said, "Can I use your room? I have this idea, Jay." He goes, "You know, like the Rat Pack." And I was like, "Yeah, I know the Rat Pack." And he goes, "I want to do comedy like the Rat Pack, um, but uh, but with hip hop." beats so he put together this dope crew of musicians that play for like you know big time local people in vogue and fantastic negrito and all these people um and they would play like 90s hip-hop golden era hip-hop music as he was telling jokes and we actually recorded the audio um and there was part of it where he talked about your white friend that is the coolest dude but never says the N-word. And when you're listening to the rap songs with the N-word in it. <laughs> I hella thought of Kuba. I was thinking about that today for just no reason whatsoever because I wanted to play it. I wanted to play it. And I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release this for patrons. So I hit him up to make sure it was still cool um, because he ended up like – working out a deal with some network and 
He's like, no, nah, man, you can't, you can't play that material, brother. I can't have you. I can't have people hear it. Da, 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 da. So I, did, but I let, I let, I believe I let you hear it, Pascal, a while back. I remember. I thought, and and they have a whole joke where they use the suck a nigga beat. They're 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 and and they're all riffing over it, and he's talking about forcing his white friend to say the n word, and it is literally one of the funniest. <laughs> I went, if I haven't sent it to you, Kuba, I will send it to you. Send it to me. I I found it the other day. Comrade, please. <laughs> I should already have it. <laughs> so we're looking like real school shootery. Nah, <laughs> eh, that was me twenty years ago. That's what I thought about your wedding. Those people were so mean. <laughs> <laughs> you mean his friends and family? <laughs> oh my God! They were calling him a school shooter like all night. <laughs> a virgin school shooter. <laughs> my my wedding. Yeah. <laughs> it was this roast. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a Canadian tradition of like mocking people to near like death during their nuptials and or any other major occasion? Is this way? Yeah, actually a bit. All the time. Okay. The um, you, uh, it was um, that's why we had the um, we saved some speeches for the after party, but um, you know, Mia delivered to the full crowd. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's kind of like after, after it's all said and done, after everyone's eaten, it's your chance to, um, to be funny and get, get, get a few things off your chest. <laughs> but, you know, they were, yeah, there I mean, were some was, speeches that I was teared up at. I'm not going to lie. I teared up at, uh, when they came back from the, from the wedding and described the way that you were treated, I was like. Do the guests actually like Kubo? <laughs> there was a moment. The, the table is with me, Doug Lane, Burgess. Kuba uh, had another friend that's like a China scholar, John. What is his name? John Seed. Why is he not on the show yet? Um, the I maybe for fear that he'll like you'll trick him into saying the N word. <laughs> I mean, this seems like a real possibility now. (laughs) Jason's trying to get us all canceled forever. Mm -hmm. No, my brother. (laughs) (laughs) Was that Pascal that told me to put that on the board? That was me. That was you. She chose that. 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 I I love that. That is my new favorite. You got to put that one on. (laughs) Because <laughs> every time I play it, I see the commercial. Yep. <laughs> I remember. So I remember being. I still was staying like the weekend at my dad's house when that commercial used to come on every time. Mm-hmm. And for those that don't know, there was this commercial that would play at night, and it was about uh, these classic songs. Maybe the rights were up on them, and that's why they were. They, they made this compilation. It was called Hey Love. Mm-hmm. There's all these classic kind of doo-wop songs, um, and this commercial was like what, like five, maybe even like a half hour. Like an, yeah, half an hour, an hour. Yeah. And it and it ended with this. 
No, my brother. You've got to buy your own. <laughs> and my, I remember my dad watched it for the hundredth time, and he was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to buy it. Yes. I'm not just going to enjoy this music for free on this long commercial. <laughs> Bankrupted that Negro. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that was a proud moment in black history. <laughs> Why are all the proud moments in black history like 80s crack and Hey Love? Yeah, I mean, Hey Love. See how quiet Pascal got? Jason's been off the meat rack all show, man. <laughs> All, all, all I'm sitting there saying was Jason like, nigga, 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 I will allow you to guess what the cargo is. Jason, what's the cargo? No, my brother. <laughs> That's right, Cocoa Pods. Cocoa Pods. All of you should feel ashamed of yourselves. Only like, 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 seriously, seriously. Pascal, there was a moment in BET's history where every time it was like a black history show, it was just Negroes selling drugs and the glorification of Negroes selling crack. And it's almost like that's where history is like the best, right? Reagan era fucking bootstrapping crack salesman and Booker T. Washington. Isn't this why Aaron Magruder basically declared war on, on BET? BET. Before? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, like, Did I tell you? So the boot, so I can watch the Boondocks on YouTube here in Mexico. Mm-hmm. I was going back and watching some of those episodes. They're edited in the United States now. Yeah, they're highly edited. There's a oh. couple that have been taken out entirely. You can't watch. They anymore. they even have they even have the um the BET one where she wants to destroy black people. Tears. Just, I just have been having tears rolling down. That's why I'm saying the N word so much. It's Aaron Magruder's fault. Uh, oh, you're I named blame my Aaron child Magruder after now. one of the characters on that show. Thank you, Joshua. Oh, um, Julian Riley. Julian Riley is. Oh, that makes perfect director. sense now. Okay. Julian Riley looked at me about a year ago and said, "Dad," because that's how he talks now. His voice is all deep, and he's taller than me. And he said, Dad, is it true that you and Mom named me after some cartoon? I was like, yep. <laughs> and your first name was supposed to be Riley, but she got cold feet, and that's your middle name. So the California surfer accent is not racialized. Good to know. Like, yeah, he's a skater. <laughs> so Julian, I assume that's Julian the Apostate, the Byzantine Emperor, right? <laughs> My boy. We, we she needed a J name and Julian was the name she wanted and I wanted him to be Riley because we watched that R Kelly episode on repeat. Oh God, oh, <laughs> that's the episode that inspired that. Oh my God, that's the episode. Once piss coming, I move. When she saw piss coming, she stayed. Oh, my, my ex-wife 
fell the fuck out, and she would quote that on a dime. And she would probably be so embarrassed right now, but no one she knows watches this show. It'll never get back to her. Right? Just as I say that, my daughter. Mm-hmm. Like, mom, she we have saved it for the champagne room. Crazy mm. reason. And mom said, don't ever say her name again, and you're going to court. And you're going to court. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah, Andy William. And I'll piss on your cat. God, of course, Andy William got the lines. <laughs> Riley, Nikki, you came up. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's you a proud moment in black history. You want to hear, hear something real funny? <laughs> this show has a sponsor when it's on the audio. Oh, God. <laughs> Not anymore. For real. My own. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I've, uh, there's people asking in the where I see some asking multiple times how was Halloween with my child. I did not get to spend Halloween with my child, but I did get to take him to his Filipino martial arts class where he was very nervous, and so I decided to do it with him. So I was, you know, a 45-year-old man amongst a bunch of four-year-olds uh, mm. doing Filipino martial arts. And my and my child was in his Halloween costume as a five-year-old. How many Amber Alerts did that trigger? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know him? Do you know him? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you have to remember, I'm the black guy. In the Filipino martial arts class with this beige child that people now know is some sort of. Do you know this man? So that was that was. Is he your driver? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Benson right in there with him. (laughs) Hey, Benson was the mayor, wasn't he, or the governor? He became the lieutenant governor. There you go. When the governor got the job. Everybody want to trash Benson. Talk about affirmative action. God damn. Another problem in black history. When Benson got the job. This is problem. Nigga, what? This is the problem with uh, free champagne. It's it's full of toxic coloring. (laughs) (laughs) But I was trying to tell you guys a feel-good story. Or you start shitting all over me, looking like a goddamn kid diddler <laughs> with skinny jeans on in the goddamn Filipino martial arts class. Uh, so after the Filipino martial arts class, uh, we went to the park. There's a park near where we stayed in Chinatown. And I don't think I got a chance to tell you this part, Pascal, in Tucson. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. We get to the park. Because we can't check into the hotel yet. And so, like, this is, like, right smack dab in the middle of Chinatown. I think it's called, like, St. Mary's Park or something like that. Really cool park. My son loves it. He's running around in his fireman shit. He's got a fireman backpack. Mm-hmm. And it comes with a, uh, with a little fireman hose and a little axe. And my son is telling me, Dad, the axe is for the door. It's not for people. They're in trouble for the door. And then he's going, he's breaking down little imaginary doors and doing little kid shit. And then the most hood Chinese kids roll up. 
they're five and three. And these kids were so, I don't know what side of China they're from. Where is the Chinese hood? West side, the south side of China. West side, Xinjiang. Datong, maybe. Shaanxi. Wherever you people make hood Chinese people is where these Negroes came from. Just make sure you know that Martin Luther King Boulevard's out there. That's your only Hey, I was in the city and I was in they hood. I was in Chinatown. And 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 this then one this kid big fucking head too got his head big and he walked up to my son he's got his, my son's got his fireman hat and the kid just snatched it off his head and then his little sister went for the for the little fireman backpack and I was like what the f- whoa they didn't say hi they didn't say let me see they just grabbed and I looked at the mom and the mom tried to have this look of shock. I'm like, bitch, you know these kids is bad. You know they was bad when you left the fucking house. <laughs> and so I tell the Where are their leashes is what I want to know. She let them Negroes off. And I keep saying this. I want you to know these were some trifling kids. These was little kids in the hood. Goblins. They were goblins. If he, if he would have told me his name was DeAndre. No. I <laughs> That's the most hood name of all time. If your name is DeAndre, you get into some trouble. You have a warrant if your name is DeAndre. With an apostrophe. <laughs> if you have an apostrophe, you don't know your daddy. Oh, you never finna know that nigga. But anyway, little Chinese DeAndre tried to take my son's little fireman backpack and I had to take I had to take it out of his hand in front of his mom and and then he came back and said well can I play with it I was like nah nah you can't you look too rough go <laughs> no my brother go <laughs> get new to- <laughs> <laughs> no my brother you got to buy your own right <laughs> <laughs> trifling ass mama wherever the fuck you I'm sure your daddy left because he was tired of dealing with your monkey ass so these kids keep Keep trying to fuck with my son. So the lady, they have, they came on, and they came on a hood ass shit. Uh, the little boy came on a, one of them bikes with no uh, pedals, and the little girl had a little fucked up ass scooter, and uh, just hood, just little hood kids. This model minority shit, please, y'all, kill it. I was in the belly of the beast. Okay, I saw hood shit. So the lady left. The lady goes, can you watch? Are you going to be here for a while? Can you watch my kid's stuff? And I said, please, yes, just leave. I'll be here. Just leave, please. You and these badass kids. So she leaves the little bike and stuff and the little fucked up scooter. And then so my son is finally can play free. But I did take his shit. And I was like, I'm going to take your little helmet and this little backpack water hose things. I can't have, you know, the fucked up Asian Negroes breaking your stuff so the lady came back and she i think she felt bad because had i i think had i been chinese i think she would have beat the shit out of them kids in front of me and felt nothing but i think she was trying to hold it in like oh oh they never act like this i don't (laughs) and so she went and she actually bought cookies and she bought a cookie for for phoenix as well you know those big Cookies you get from the grocery store where they have icing on it and shit. Mm-hmm. 
And she was like, oh. And then she bought like little sandwiches and she bought Phoenix a little sandwich. I was like, I can't, I can't take your sandwich. We'll take the fucking cookie, but we won't take the sandwich. So Phoenix takes the cookie. We hang out with them for a little bit. And then we go to the hotel, take our stuff off. And I'm like, Phoenix, you want to take the, the fireman costume off? And then he looked at me like I was stupid. Like, no, I'm like, look at this. This is working. Yep. So we go, we start walking. We start walking down the street. And uh, when I'm with my son, I really don't care what else is going on in the world. We got one rule. Stay in front of me. Say hi to everybody. And uh, the only way I can get him to cross the street fast enough is if I tell him that he's got to jump up the curb. Like, all right, you ready to do the jump up the curb? And he's got to show off. And he's a fireman. And all these people are looking at him. And they're just, oh, my God, he is just the most adorable fireman. And there was a, a very nice uh, woman that had a bunch of candy. She had a big box of candy. It looked like she was going to go hand it out for maybe a Halloween party. And she had like a nine or 10-year-old daughter. And the daughter just kept looking at Phoenix. And she said something to her mom. And the daughter goes, can he have some candy? And they gave him this big-ass bag of candy. Nice. I'm like, I'm like, you are making out like all a- fentanyl. <laughs> <laughs> Just giving it away. <laughs> Gotta start them young. <laughs> so you're saying it was a plot? Yeah. I- I'm saying that that was a drug deal you saw. <laughs> that you brokered. Right. Is that why my son wouldn't let the? I put the candy in my pocket, and my son kept staring at me. He kept staring at me like this. He kept staring at me hella hard. I'm like, what's wrong? He goes, uh, where's the candy at? Don't worry about where the candy is. Trying to punk me? Where is that? So we keep walking, and there's a pizza place he likes to go to. You know those pizza places where they make the slice that you New York people like where it's as big as your face? Bigger than your head. Yes. Yep. So it's Phoenix. called real pizza. Yep. Wow. Yep. No, my brother. <laughs> I prefer Detroit pizza personally, but that's just me. Because it's hearty. Anyway, the pizza place that we like to go to was closed, and Phoenix was very upset about that. And I was like, that's all right, son. I know another spot. And I hadn't been this high up in the tenderloin in a while and i don't know the last time cuba was in san francisco but it's bad oh yes i mean when you said tenderloin i'm like why are you there with a child (laughs) so yeah i mean wow i mean it's no longer a drug deal it is now human trafficking (laughs) it's bad they're just just shooting up everywhere but every time we're walking around because this little boy, this fireman, is just so happy to be around, and he don't know what people is doing. They put the drugs away. Everybody's putting the drugs away. Aww. And they're actually really happy to see him, right? And uh, there's a dude. Uh, I don't know for sure if he was a junkie. I'm pretty sure he might have been a junkie. And we walk up. We're on. We're in between Polk and. Uh, Oh, what street is that? I can't think. But we're we're towards the top, towards Polk, Jeez. going up Geary. Yeah, this is not a great neighborhood. I know exactly what you're talking. It's not a great. So you know what I'm talking about? We're by, the, we're by the methadone clinic, right? Right. Yes. Why? The cats. I'm t- I'm not trying to be funny. Cats are, and I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it. Cats are all over the street, right? Passed out. 
It's like that, Pascal. This and is you, meaning men, not cats. Can I like, just yes, make like sure? grown ass men. Okay. <clears throat> but Phoenix doesn't know any. They're just people. Like what? They just mm-hmm. they seem sleepy. Okay, you know. <laughs> so mm-hmm. And and but everybody, there was something about the mood where. People were pretty. They were like they were laughing. They were smile. So this dude, again, I don't know for sure if he was a junkie, but he handed Phoenix ten bucks. Mm. Yeah, buy yourself something nice. Yeah. 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 I mean, he did. I'm I'm holding his hand. He didn't have to. I didn't think I. Yeah, I just just take it. I'm gonna spend it on drugs anyway. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend it on heroin anyway, kid. Go ahead. <laughs> Give me some of that fentanyl. That was another drink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, to be fair to the Bay, it now costs so much to live there that they may be like lower middle class stockbrokers or something. I don't know. But... Right? <laughs> Upper lower middle class. <laughs> <laughs> like, they just fucked up a couple of deals and now this is where they're at. The tenderloin. But... <laughs> tenderloin. Yeah. Little kids rolled up $10 bills. <laughs> It's it's uh, I used to spend a lot of time in the Tenderloin when I was thinking about moving to the Bay Area before I left the country, and uh, it was messed up then, but it was affordable. It is no longer affordable, but it is still messed up. It is. Um, oh yeah, like um, a <laughs> hundred grand per year for a one bedroom apartment that um you'll involuntarily share with whoever can break in. we yeah it was it was bad and i was having this moment where i'm older now as a dad my daughter calls me grandpa dad no (laughs) because i'm not that she's having she just thinks it's funny that i have this child um and she also calls my father that because i'm 32 years older than my sister um jesus yeah the youngest one that family tree's got branches <laughs> all different heights. All different <laughs> well, at least it's not a singular branch. Sure, right? <laughs> Goes straight up. <laughs> they said she's pregnant. No, that's just what she calls me. My daughter, no. She's so terrified of having her own children. Um, and she actually ended up coming to hang out with us, too. But as we were walking down the street, I called Pascal and we'd have our group call. And this uh, this other homeless dude is who's living in a van, uh, very obviously, sees me and Phoenix. He goes, "Hey, is this your son?" And I was like, "Yeah." Let's <laughs> just walk around snatching little light skinned children. Sounds uh, just like my ex neighbor. And he goes, "He played the drums." And I said, actually, he has a drum set. Uh, I haven't been able to practice with him lately. He goes, I got some brand new drumsticks, man. I'm, I want to give them to your son. And I'm thinking here, so I'm like, okay, what's his name for the pull out of his car? He gets out of his van. He goes in the back and he's talking to somebody that's listening in the back of the van. He's like, the drumsticks, nigga. And he goes, <laughs> damn. And he, and he pulls out in the package brand new drumsticks and he hands them over to me ever so calmly and he says when i see young black kids like this and he's, he's a black man 
I, I, I want to give them drumsticks. Maybe they'll be the next big time drummer. And I looked over at my son, my rhythmless son. And I was like, maybe, but thank you. And, uh, and so now he's got drumsticks, candy, $10. Money. He yeah. just ate a big ass cookie from the Chinese. Wait, movie. wait, 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 wait. Does he run a gang? Because it sounds like he's just getting tribute from everybody. Like, are those protection drumsticks? Yep. Is that protection candy? Fireman protection. <laughs> exactly. I use this axe to help people. But sometimes... <laughs> so as we're, we're finally getting back to the hotel because his sister's like, Dad, we're here at the hotel and she can't wait to see her brother and you know, um, as we get ready to cross the street, this white man walks up to me. He goes, a lot of us have been watching you guys for blocks. Not creepy. I also <laughs> was watching for blocks. <laughs> Watch your back, nigga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he said, he said, this is, this is, you guys are adorable. And, uh, remember this. And I was like, oh, man. So to answer your question, I had a lot of fun with my son on Saturday. We didn't get to go out trick-or-treating, but I think he got enough stuff with me on Saturday. <laughs> this comment. <laughs> very normal. All of this is very normal. <laughs> for, for a daddy in Phoenix adventure, that is very normal because uh, we do. he likes to walk around the Tenderloin, and the rule is once we walk out of the hotel, I just ask him where he wants to go. You point me in the direction, and I'll follow you. Uh, we, we got to hang out in a in a art gallery. Um, I've been taking my kids to art galleries since uh, they were old enough to leave with me. Uh, art galleries and music shows, so they get little free art lessons at the galleries, and it doesn't cost anything to go there. Nice. So it's better than the museum. Yeah. Museums are only free in DC or Canada. <laughs> or Canada. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's suggested at the Met, okay? Yeah, that's true. They will let you in at the Met if you don't give them what like, your your uh, what is the suggestion? Your firstborn. Yeah, it, it was twenty five dollars when I went like thirteen years ago. Mm-hmm. And now it's probably like eighty bucks in your arm. No, they they just one Apple share, please. <laughs> <laughs> someone says the Met is free, and then someone else says it's like forty four dollars. Look, my son, my all my kids, we walk into art galleries where the dope shit is for sale. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The Met nice. is the Met. It, you can go into the to the Met for cheap. I didn't pay the full twenty five when I went because I was yeah. broke. Is suggested. The prices are generally for tourists. I went to art school and we had to do museum reports, so the teachers made sure to tell us that. It's suggested. Do not be paying for that. Although anything in the Smithsonian is is truly free and there's no suggestion at all. You can just go, right. like, hang out in the Sackler Art Museum, just like sleep there. 
The Sackler <laughs> Art Museum. Never is the Sackler Art Museum. That's the Asian Art Museum. What you know, the Imperialist Museum where they stole all the shit in the 18th century. Which one? <laughs> well, not not the big important ones in Europe where they have like the real shit. That's the British Museum. Right. <laughs> where they have the entire city of Ephesus, apparently. There's um, a temple in at the Met, Temple of Dendar. Oh yeah, yeah that's yeah. some Star Wars shit you just met up. It's an old temple. <laughs> no, we were gonna have our prom there if those people had any vision. The Temple of Dendar. To, decided to like go with a, a boat. I mean, it took forever getting the Ewoks out of the Temple of Dendar. <laughs> the Temple of Dendar. You ever purify yourself in the Temple of Dendar? <laughs> Shut up. Oh, speaking of old clips. I, I found so I was going through the clips for some reason. Oh, because some, someone was like, "Oh, what is it that you know you meet people on these sites? Like, what is it that you do?" And I was trying to find a clip, and I found a clip of throat throat balls where me and Pascal are having a conversation about can light skin niggas fight? Oh my gosh! I couldn't stop laughing. Why? I couldn't stop. Laughing. I feel like some of us should not be privy to this conversation. <laughs> And Kuba was talking about that he thought Prince could scrap, and everybody was like, yeah, Prince could probably scrap. That's true, but <laughs> I, I would also put money on Prince. But I feel like this is a Shonda for the Whiteium. Like, <laughs> sorry, Jewish reference, but for real. <laughs> Dude, you can, I'm telling you, Derek can't say Jew. <laughs> can I word, can say please. Jew. I can say Jew, but maybe certain like- other people can't say Jew. So R J, particularly <laughs> Jew. R J. R J. Long U. I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna say it. <laughs> hey, it wasn't you. We gotta, we gotta do that. We gotta make that a drop. That needs to be a drop. Yes. I watched Kanye say that at least twenty-five times. Tears rolling down my face. Did that fool just start talking like Jerry Seinfeld all of a sudden? Terrible. That stupid brown hoodie. Kanye West is so hilarious to me. His whole life has been comedy to me from the beginning. Conway West, Strom calls him. Conway Conway. Twitty, underrated country artist. Concur. Did I I, I understand Kanye correctly in that he's both somehow a black Hebrew Israelite and a white lives matter person? Like I mean, I'm I'm being kind of serious. It's what it sounded like in that rant. Like I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I mean, yay contains multitudes. (laughs) <laughs> he is legion. He is, he is legion. Yeah. One of our best episodes. Uh, I wasn't on it. You know, yeah. those guys wanted to talk about yay. You guys crushed it on that episode. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Just wanted to maybe approach yay slightly differently than maybe some other folks. You know. I thought the Killer Mike stuff was good. I wish I would have been there for that. I told you I met Killer Mike and like told him it to his face. I was like, yeah, just, I agree. I don't agree with everything. I talked to him like, yeah, I, I don't agree with everything. <laughs> I agree with everything. I'm not you're sure very big, You're very big. You're very big. Killer Mike. Oh, gosh. 
You're a little taller than I thought. <laughs> he was. He seems like a very tall man, yeah. He's a very tall, I, smiley man. He he gave no fucks when I was talking. I don't agree with a lot of the shit you say. He so just laughed all, at me. He was like, it was like that Mean Joe Green commercial with the Coke. <laughs> like, <laughs> when your name is Killer Mike, you can be really benevolent. <laughs> this is true. He's, he's got nothing to prove. He's like, whatever, little black man with a walkie-talkie. I'm gonna go do some drugs in the backstage. <laughs> Killer Mike met you, and he was like, "This guy's not five <laughs> <laughs> ten. Definitely not five ten. <laughs> I bet he tells people that, <laughs> but he's not." Oh my god! <laughs> Killer Mike looking at your dating profile. <laughs> <laughs> Answering back, but it's your dating profile. That ain't him. <laughs> How recent are these pictures? Yesterday, bitch. Shut up. <laughs> David Russell says, Pascal, how can you not crack? Man, I'm worried about cancellation, <laughs> lawsuits. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> all kinds of alarms going on in my mind. Yeah, this is streamed to my channel, which luckily is not monetized because it definitely wouldn't be after this. Oh, wait, let's see how people are watching from Derek's channel. Oh my god, they all left. They all got scared. All of my people was like, oh, I don't know why he even deals with these people. This must be reparations. One guest appearance at a time. See, I don't just want to know Killer Mike's opinion on your dating profile. I want to know Killer Mike's opinion on like the options in Orange County. Um, <laughs> I don't like your odds. I, I want to yeah, show Killer Mike when I'm looking at him. Like, Mike, bruh, do you see this? <laughs> Nigga. <laughs> Be like, out of I am not league. in Atlanta. Out of your league, buddy. <laughs> I, 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 send, I send screenshots to Pascal sometimes. He does. I know he laughs. I know he laughs. Oh, my Lord. I know he laughs. I do. <laughs> You're in the down bad region of Mexico. Uh, just, I'm going. I'm going on a date with a woman that doesn't speak much English. So learn Spanish. It's not that hard. I'm trying to learn some Spanish for the date, so I don't sit there and just stare. Okay. <laughs> I have a wholesome story about about intercultural romance when. Uh, when a, a sinologist friend of mine um, was living in Hong Kong, he was dating a Korean woman who spoke very little English, and he spoke very little, well, no Korean, but they both poorly spoke Chinese, so they mm. they taught each other each other's languages through poorly speaking Chinese, and that was the basis of their romance. Um, it's, a, it's a true story. Uh, they're a sweet couple. Um so there's hope for you, Jason. 
not a lot, but there is hope. Gooby, you learned a different <laughs> language for your love. Um, 我我是啊汉字。That's lesson one. It's about where I'm at. <laughs> Before we go, Pascal, would you learn a different language for love? Yes, I would. You would learn a different language for love. It depends yes. on language, right? Depends on the woman. Ooh. Ooh. Does it depend on the language? To suck some hard candy and suck some dicks. You're gonna learn some Russian for that lady. Lord Jesus, why? Oh boy. Person drop. Person drop. Listen, man. The best drop is still Kamala Harris and Donald Trump. You gonna play that now? I don't know who's gonna be able. I don't know who's gonna be able to squeeze a penny out this YouTube video. (laughs) Oh no, it's uh, it's two and a half hours of free. Yep. Uh, on your left says Pascal's earmuffs. I don't know if you guys know what earmuffs means. Please oh, don't take us no. down this road. <laughs> uh, but I'm not gonna say it. You have to be. You have to be in the in the circle of trust to know what earmuffs means. Good. Okay. Oh boy. Okay, Still good. revolution, not devolution. Yeah, yeah. That's the circle of trust comment. All right. You still gotta have our inside jokes. I feel like Scotland in regards to the UK. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I enjoyed the seriousness of this show and the silliness of the show and the warm family friendliness of the show. Yeah. Please hit like. Please hit subscribe. Um, we'll be back on Saturday with Wozni Lombre. We'll be talking a little bit of sports, uh, a little bit of Kyrie Irving, a little bit of anti-Semitism. Um, and, I, and I won't make any, uh, any jokes. I'll be serious. I can, give yeah. my, I can give my rant that I wrote. And... Uh, mm-hmm. I did want to do something in this in the champagne room. I found this wonderful clip from the the classic movie Willie Dynamite that I wanted to play for Pascal. Classic movie. But you got uh, all the hits. we'll save we'll save that for later. Cuba. <laughs> thank you, brother. Derek Varn. Thank you. Pascal Robert. Yes, sir. Get some rest. I know. I know you're tired of my shit. All right, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we are.